ladies' room. We need to talk. Use the ladies' room! Welcome to another episode of The Ladies' Room. We're so glad that you guys could join us. I'm Julie DeCaro. She is Jane McManus. We both write for Deadspin, and we are really happy to be here. So this is episode four in like a week, in like less than 10 days. This is our fourth episode. So this is apparently all we do now, Jane, (laughs) just podcast. We just talk to really amazing people, Julie, is what we're doing. Yeah, like when you get all these people right in a row, it's like, I guess we'll make some content and put it up. So this is episode four. It's not always going to be like this. We're going to be down to one episode a week starting now. Enjoy it while you can, everyone. Right. Jane, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. First of all, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has been downloading and retweeting and, and you know, rating and subscribing to the show. Like the, the response has been pretty overwhelming and we're really excited for it. This is a podcast we've been excited for for a while. We've been working on it for a while. And so we're, we're really thrilled that it, that it sort of took off the way it did. Looking forward to many, many more episodes of bringing you guys uh, some really, really good guests. Before we get to our great guest today, Jane, um, I know you wanted to talk about Kelly Loeffler, who I am always up to talk about. I think, yes, I absolutely am because, you know, there's an amazing pivotal race going on in Georgia, Senate race for two seats, and the winners could decide uh, whether or not the Republicans or the Democrats have control of the Senate for the Biden administration. And I know what you're saying to yourselves right now. You're saying, Jane, this is a sports podcast. The things that you just said, they don't have much to do with sports, but that's where you're wrong. (laughs) And this is why I think it's so interesting, because the reason that Raphael Warnock's name was so out there was because of the WNBA and because Kelly Leffler, who is one of the people running for Senate there, who was named to a Senate seat to fill a vacancy back in December of 2019, is the owner of the Atlanta Dream. And this summer came out very strongly against uh, Black Lives Matter matters. She said it was the Black Lives Matter organization, but she really came out against what feels like the Black Lives Matter concept, the concept of Black Lives Mattering. She said that it was a Marxist organization and that it destroyed families and wanted to take Jesus out of the church. And really, all of these things where when you listen to the litany, you're like, wait, wait, they just, they want their communities to be safe. They, they don't want to be hunted down by police officers and shot in the street, which is unfortunately what we've seen a lot of video of in the last couple of months. So anyway, but this idea that there could be no common ground, that there could be no way of listening to the women on her team, the women in the league who are, you know, off a majority black women in the WNBA playing right now. Also, many LGBTQ community members in the WNBA as well. And just the this kind of clash of cultures of the WNBA and the ideals that it stands for and was certainly standing um, very strongly for back in the summer uh, against what really has been um, happening in with the Leffler campaign, where last week she posed for a photograph with a former leader uh, from the, uh, the KKK, which is unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable that the contrast could not be starker. But the reason that we know Raphael Warnock's name is because a group of Atlanta Dream players wore it on the court before a nationally televised game this summer. And it was a brilliant strategy. And I mean, to think that we might not be at this moment where the Democrats could have control 
of the Senate uh, on January 5th were if, if it were not for a, a calculated move by some players in the WNBA. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. And there were some studies, you know, um, done on how much the WNBA players actually moved voters towards Reverend Warnock during the primary and, or during the during the actual, I guess, the actual election. But now we're going to run off the uh, WNBA. They always felt I felt like they were sort of shuffled behind the W or behind the NBA in the Black Lives Matter um, conversation. But I mean, they are the, the most progressive league we have. For the longest time, I mean, one of the first stories I wrote for Deadspin this year was about the chief of police, excuse me, the chief of the police's labor union in Minneapolis. And he is the guy that had the the coaches or the, excuse me, the security guards walk out of the Minnesota Lynx game because they wore Black Lives Matter shirts. So they've been in this fight for a long time. 2015, I think, was the first time that Black Lives Matter shirts were worn on a basketball court in a professional setting, and it was by the WNBA. So they've had a lot to do um, with change, with facilitating change. And I mean, Kelly Loeffler, she she campaigned with QAnon people. She's t- you know obviously taken this picture with the KKK. I mean, she's she is a horrible, racist, bad person. I don't know what to say, what else to say about that. It's, it's, you know, it's, I, I think the stuff that she says is, is just completely outside the bounds of what public officials should be saying. And, and she doesn't seem to care who she hangs around with. So, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest stories we wrote at Deadspin this year was everybody hates Kelly. <laughs> and that was the headline. And, you know, it was a huge story because it was just about all the things that she's done, the insider trading and calling Black Lives Matters terrorists. And I mean, it, it's just been ridiculous. If it's she's almost a caricature and you know of a Disney villain at this point. Yeah. Um, and it it is strange. I, I did read a in August Candace Buckner over at the Washington Post did a really really well done reported feature about her and kind of went through her childhood where she played basketball for a high school team and she had a because she was so gangly it, she was like 5'10 when she was on the team and she had this nickname uh, NBC, which stood for newborn calf <laughs> because she just <laughs> couldn't, couldn't figure out how to use her limbs all the way, you know, when she was just, when she was young. Um, and, you know, kind of humanized her for me a little bit. She was a big basketball person and, and I, you know, and I grew up a big basketball person too. And so, you know, kind of thinking about that, her from a different point of view, but, but, um, you know, she has come into a place where she has fully embraced, these ideas that are antithetical, I think, to what the WNBA players and and the league really has decided that they want to stand for. You know, for example, the, the you know the Atlanta Dream actually honored Stacey Abrams, uh, who ran for governor two years ago, lost to Brian Kemp, who was also the attorney general at the time and was you know making a lot of the decisions on how the election was run, which some people thought was mm-hmm. a conflict of interest. But you know, so Stacey Abrams was honored on the court by Kelly Leffler a couple of years ago. Um, so, so there's been a, there's been a pretty big change when it comes to that. But anyway, I think it's something to look for. And I think it's interesting to think of the WBA playing such a big role in such a big national moment that we're about to experience. Yeah. And I think it's especially poignant in fact, in light of all the, uh, you know, every time you tweet a WNBA score, you get all the guys come over and say, nobody cares about women's basketball. Obviously people do care. Because it's made a difference. And in this case, it it may have handed, you know, they may have had a part in handing over the U.S. Senate to the Democrats. 
So you're right. It's been really interesting. Speaking of guys who come over and say stupid things on Twitter, (laughs) we were sort of talking about this with our guests uh, before we started recording. So I just wanted to jump into it real quick, Jane. And it's it's not like something I really want to dwell on, but I feel like it's one of those things that happens to women in sports. It's become so normalized. And I just want to just point out that if you treat people like this, you are not a normal person and you need to get help. So I was talking the other day, and I know you and I have joked around about this, that, you know, that there's this pressure for women to always be Zoom ready in this day, right? So, you know, like when you're at work, you're walking around with your friends and you go to a meeting or whatever, and it's fine. But there's something about being on Zoom with the lighting and you just, it doesn't, you don't look great. This is why they have all kinds of people working in makeup and lighting and everything in TV to make people look good. And I think that for a lot of us, especially who have found it difficult to sort of um, keep it together, for lack of a better term. (laughs) Like, you know, there are days when at five o'clock, I'm still sitting here in my pajamas with my hair in a ponytail and I look like a disaster. And the last thing I want to do is jump on Zoom um, with a bunch of dudes and be like, hey, what's up? What's up? You know, and I think that it's really it's putting a lot of pressure on us that doesn't necessarily need to be there. And I want to normalize like turning off people's cameras. They've got you on the phone. That's enough. They don't need to see your face, too. Well, so I tweeted that. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Let's go finish, please. So I tweeted that out. And, and all these women are agreeing, like, yeah, it's so much. It's like, I feel like I have to constantly, you know, not only deal with everything else, working from home during a pandemic and, and taking care of my kids and doing this and that. And now I have to worry about how I look on camera. So some guy comes over and, and it's at this point, it's like, you know, this happens to me every day. So I don't even know why this one bothered me so much. But he said something like, And first of all, this is a guy who like anonymous, right? Doesn't use his name, doesn't put his picture on. So he's going to run judgment on everyone else. And he says something like, Julie can't hide her double chin and her enormous body on Zoom. And this is a big problem for her. And like, you know, I like muted him and I was like, whatever, dude. And I just went about my day. But it just kept like sticking in my craw. And, And I guess what it's at the end of this horrible year, when so many people have gone through pain and loss and frustration and have lost jobs and are on food lines, that there are people that just exist to just sit there on the internet and say things to you to make you feel bad about yourself is absolutely stunning to me. And if you are a person that does that, that is not normal. I saw that you tweeted that and I couldn't see the tweet. So I thought, oh, this must be somebody that I've muted or blocked, which, you know, could be one of thousands right. <laughs> at this point. But then I really, then I went and kind of clicked on it and it turned out that he had deleted his account. So congratulations, Julie. Thank you. For bring, shining a light on that kind of bullshit such that he had a moment of reflection in which he felt bad about what he had done and himself or how he might look to other people who know who he is in real life. Which is good. I mean, I think those those moments are kind of too few and far between. But if if it required him deleting his account, well, account, then I'm then I'm glad that that happened. Well, um, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, it's like who knows why you one guy, uh, one day is just the one who like just pushes the button that makes you flip like I did because normally I get that stuff so often I'm just like whatever. But I went and looked at that guy's timeline. He all he does all day is say stuff like that to women, and and I was Not just fun. like. And, and there's like seven women following him. I'm like, why are you following this guy? What are you doing? Because they're they're actually men. <laughs> you Probably. Know, like, I, I have no confidence that the quote unquote women following him are. Actually. <laughs> but yeah, that's you know that's unfortunately that's part of the deal with being on the internet, which stinks. But I I agree with you also that 
uh, I do not want to be on Zoom all the time. I am a, I am going to be 50 in January, which is, you know, I'm very glad to have been here. I do not hide my age. I'm very proud of all of my experiences. But it does mean that I that being alive is not the same as being ready to be on Zoom. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I am alive, but I'm not Zoom ready. Being alive is not the same exactly. as being ready to be on Zoom. So, so I do. I feel that way also. I feel like we need to have parameters. And, I, and it's, you know, it's maybe it's the extension of the Jeffrey Tubinization of uh, our media experiences and having cameras in our home all the time that we're somehow expected to always be ready to be surveilled. And, um, and the answer to that is no, I'm not, I'm not always ready to be on camera looked at or watched. And I do think there's, um, you know, I think this is part of the reason the classroom experience is different when you're not on a campus and when you're experiencing something through zoom, there is this idea the screen is a filter. The screen is a monitor. The screen stands in for more than, um, just as a, a telephone allows connection. It's more than that. It is being observed and the act of being observed. And I think that um, it makes you take things in differently. It alters the way that you're engaging with people uh, who are also on the screen. It, our judgments turn on in ways that they don't when we're standing in front of people. And I just think it's um, it's exhausting. And I think that's why you get Zoom fatigue is uh, that there is a there is a level of being that it, it plays on your brain in a different way. And it, you know, I, I just, I think there's too much of it. Obviously I cannot wait to get back in classrooms with people. I cannot wait to get back and have my catch-ups with people be over, you know, dinner and ice tea. I just cannot yeah. wait for that moment. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, and if you're a woman um, who has any kind of following online, then you also have trolls and, you know, the thing about, I mean, I have said no, I've turned down TV a bunch of times this year because I'm like, there, you know, you know how TV is like, oh, can you come on in 20 minutes? And it's like, no, I'm sitting here in my pajamas. Like I'm, I cannot come on in 20 minutes. You know, and I think that if you're a woman who works, who has an opinion on the internet, much less if you work in sports, um, you know, there's always those guys that are going to take a screenshot and show it around. Is it going to be someone's avatar? And it's you with like six chins because it's a weird angle, you know? And it's just one of those things that I'm just as a woman so sick of having to think about all the time, um, especially when the criticism is coming from guys in anonymous accounts. So I just wanted to throw that out there and say, once again, if you're the kind of person that does this to women, there's a lot of people out there that can get you help. <laughs> um, there's a lot of places on Twitter that offer mental health help. There's, you know, there's and also if like that's the way you spend your time, you need it. There's, they're jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. There are, there's knitting. There are other hobbies, you know, out there for everybody's people. making sourdough. Go make some, <laughs> you know, grow a starter. Right. It's so, it's something, something people drink something. And you know what? I'm excited to talk to the guests that we have coming up because, um, you know, I think she is somebody who has endured a lot and has emerged and maintains and has a lot to say. And we're going to be talking to Katie Nida, and she's going to be coming up. We'll do that next. Stick around on The Ladies Room. Joining us now is Katie Nida. She was the first woman to kick points in an FBS game uh, for New Mexico back in 2003. And of course, Katie's been back in the news with Sarah Fuller kicking some points for Vanderbilt and becoming the quote unquote first woman in a power five game, which is means the first woman in the last 10 years or so. So 
not an exceptionally long time, but we wanted to talk to Katie and and welcome to the show, Katie. Hey, great to be here, guys. Can I just talk to you a little bit? You first started off at Colorado and then you went to New Mexico. And I think some of what we've seen is the way that Vanderbilt dealt with Sarah. Coach had her back and some of the players had her back pretty publicly. And just what that experience was like uh, on New Mexico and how much of a difference it makes to have a team that's very supportive. Oh, definitely. Well, that was one of the really great things to see with Sarah getting out there kicking and knowing, um, you know, that Derek Mason had brought her in and brought her in for all the right reasons. Um, you know, when we got a little bit of background on how that came to be since they, uh, you know, didn't have, they weren't able to have open tryouts for a kicker there on campus because they had no students. There was no male soccer team. So it was like, Hey, you know, let's, let's look at the women's team and see if we can find someone who's got a leg here. And knowing that, um, you know, it sounded like uh, Vanderbilt's uh, football coach, Derek Mason, was also good friends with um, the women's soccer coach there. So he was able to go to him and say, hey, you know, do you have someone who could possibly fill in and fit into this position for us? We need a place kicker. Um, It was really, uh, you know, kind of cool to see the way that that seemed to transpire all you know, in a really positive direction. And, uh, you know, that coach Mason, uh, was able to bring her in and the team, I think they were just, you know, happy to have a kicker because they had <laughs> lost so many guys. Yeah. To, to COVID here, looking at, at how at their numbers were just, I mean, unbelievable when I was, when I was looking there and thinking, Oh my God, you know, fielding a team that's got 40 some guys on it. I, I can't imagine because, you know, um, Obviously, when I I was playing, I was used to having you know these rosters of 110 guys, 120 guys. So thinking about 40 was was kind of mind blowing. Yeah, your experience was so different, you know, because you'd been on you know you'd been on teams and kicking had kind of been your goal for so long. Yeah, definitely a different situation with um, uh, you know, I had been focusing on football basically, uh, once I got into high school and started kicking, I just, you know, that was kind of, that was my jam. I knew that I loved it. And there was something about kicking that oblong ball that I just couldn't get out of my system. So that really became my, my focus, uh, versus, you know, you see a lot of women who, are sticking with, you know, soccer and football together and then end up going to um, play soccer in college. But for me, it was kind of football all the way there. And um, I think, um, you know, it probably was a little bit different for me that I had been playing football for all those years. And Sarah goes out there. And I mean, I was so impressed that she was able to kick as well as she was for having just, you know, learning how to kick a football like you know what like seven days 14 days before i mean it was really impressive yeah it's kind of crazy well i've got to say as a soccer player as a former soccer player we used to kick field goals for fun like and i think most soccer players that play on like football fields do and so whenever a team loses a kicker i'm always sort of wondered why they don't just go get a soccer player because obviously not everybody can do it but if you're a goalie or if you're somebody from you know who's used to playing in the back and taking those long goal kicks maybe something that the right person can, you know, pick up the skill, I guess, relatively quickly, although certainly not like someone that's done it their entire career. But Katie, one of the things I want to ask you, and and I'm not asking you this to make you uncomfortable in any way, 
But just to sort of comment on the um, dynamics of it is, you know, if you were a person who hasn't really followed college football or who doesn't know you and what you've accomplished, you would be, you know, forgiven for thinking that Sarah Fuller was the first woman to kick, you know, during a men's college football game. You were actually the third woman to kick in a college football game. Liz Heaton did it for uh, NEIA's Wilmette University in 1997, or I guess Willamette University. Ashley Martin did it in a Division I AA Jacksonville State in 2001. And then you came along in uh, what, 2003? Does that sound right? Uh, yeah. Well, 2002, I attempted in our bowl game uh, against UCLA. And then 2003 was when I kicked the two extra points um, and became the first one to score in a uh, Division I uh, football game. So I guess to me, it's just it's just strange that, you know, it seems like because we talk about this in sports media all the time that, you know, women wind up in this weird situation where you are viewed to be in competition with someone or view someone as competition, even when you support each other, because everyone's sort of fighting for their scraps. And, and not to suggest that you were doing that in any way with Sarah Fuller. But I know that when people started saying things like, you know, she's the first woman to kick in a men's college game and, and everyone who knows you started being like, no, that's not true. Katie Nida did it first, you know, and there's people before her that, that kicked in men's college games. And it's just like this weird situation where you can't say, actually, that's not true, just to like stake your claim sort of to the accomplishment, which you are right to do. I don't know. It's just this weird thing where it just feels like there's always room for like one woman at a time and never more than that. No, I think you're absolutely correct. And sometimes it's so weird because they have this thing in the media and it, you know, goes beyond sports where it feels like it's like they're trying to pit women against each other instead of, you know, letting us all kind of be out there and supporting each other. And particularly because, you know, you look at like Liz Houston. I mean, I had her on my wall when I was in high school. And then, you know, Ashley Martin came along and then I was there and I, I never looked at any of these as like I was competing with these women, but, you know, more so as like we were all kind of like building onto each other. And I actually was really excited because the other day I finally got to see an interview uh, that was recent with Liz um, Houston about uh, Sarah kicking because Liz really was the first one who like cracked through the college doors for, for all of us. And, you know, she made a reference to the fact that, you know, we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of each other, that even her as the first woman to kick in any kind of collegiate football game, that title nine had come before. And, you know, I, I really feel like that's something that's important to note that it's like all of our stories as women and women on the sports field. And, and even outside of that, we're all kind of connected as, you know, we're sitting here, you know, kind of breaking down barriers or forging new trails. I think that that's something that's, you know, important to note and hopefully it should be a positive thing that there's more than one of us out there and that we're, you know, again, uh, as Liz said, kind of stepping on each other's shoulders and climbing to do this. I wrote a column about this, as you know, Katie, um, <laughs> but for our <laughs> listeners, to me, I feel like when we write stories like what happened with Sarah Fuller, there's this impulse to have it be a celebration of a story. And I have no problem with that because I'm very impressed with Sarah Fuller as a person yes. and what she was able to do. However, I do think that it kind of, uh, it isn't the whole story. And this idea that it's a celebration can leave some people on the sidelines. And I do feel like that's what happened with you because your story at Colorado before you got to New Mexico and had that really great, I think, team experience, which is shows us all what the 
best of sports have to offer. But you you also had an experience that was what the worst that women can experience when you try to cross a barrier, a gender barrier in sports at Colorado. And I felt like part of the reason that you got cut out of the Sarah Fuller story was because it's hard to have a celebration uh, of Sarah Fuller while still talking about a context that shows just what women can experience uh, at when they try to accomplish these types of things. Yeah, I think that you're right. And I, I actually think that, um, you know, what I appreciated the most was you being able to point that out and something that I, uh, you know, this quote that keeps on being repeated is something that I had kept in my locker for a long time that says, you know, the first to the wall is always bloodied. And it was something that somebody gave me, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it was after CU or during CU or at, at what point, but it was something that I hung on to. And, uh, you know, I really kind of took some time there to look back just at the context of, you know, women breaking through different barriers and what a lot of women had to go through. I was reading about things like the first woman who um, attended the Citadel or, you know, just things that were, um, you know, not necessarily sports related, but times when women had, uh, you know, were the first in something or broken through. And just the fact that it, it isn't always a, you know, rosy picture, you know, perfect story. And that a lot of times there is a lot of adversity there and there's um, some nasty stuff that, you know, you, you go through sometimes. And that, that is, that is a very real part of, um, history and a very real part of a lot of these stories, including my own. And in a way, I I don't feel like the, you know, adversity or what I went through at CU should, should take away from, you know, what we've been able to accomplish as women more. I think it's important that we still take a look at that because it's something that I do believe will kind of continue to repeat itself because it, it has, there's a reason why that, that quote has, um, you know, kind of rung true for for so many women or why so many people have kind of repeated it as we've uh you know talked about my story it's funny that you bring that that quote up katie because someone told me that exact same quote when i was having a really rough night on the radio one night um and i wonder how many women have heard that story for how many years and we're still kind of in the same situation where you know the first person through the walls is still the bloodiest you know i i was thinking about what we've just learned about LSU and the ongoing sexual assaults that have been covered up there, what, you know, the situation at Baylor where there was apparently gang rape was just running amok and no one was doing anything about it. And, you know, hearing so many of the college coaches and just the idiotic things that have come out of their mouths this season, (laughs) I feel like we do this really weird thing in this country where it's like the weirder and more like obsessive about football, college football coaches, like the greater we think he is. Like, I remember, I don't remember if it was, if it was Tabo Sweeney, if it was Nick Saban or who it was, but I remember in 2016, one of those guys didn't even know that it was election day, like for the presidential election. Oh God, really? I can't remember who it was. So it's like this thing, like, you know, I, think it was Davo. I feel like they're familiar. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So like, you know, and this is a, you know, a NFL example, but you know, like Adam Gase, like, you know, leaving his wife at, before she's even sewn up from the C-section at the hospital because he has to go back to practice or like the stuff with John Gruden, like not sleeping. Like these are not normal things. And and honestly, when you have people that are that hyper-focused on one thing, and that is winning football games, I have concerns about sending women into locker rooms in those situations because so many women who 
aren't even in the locker room, who are maybe just even around the locker room or just around on campus, wind up being victims of, you know, violent attacks, be it sexual or domestic violence or whatever, by so many guys on these football teams. And it just seems that no one is holding anyone accountable. So I guess the question is, you know, should we be concerned about women going into these locker rooms and these team situations? And if so, how much of that is what's holding women back from from us seeing more women? you know, on college football teams. You know, it's so interesting because as you were saying that, Julie, I wasn't even thinking women. I was like, God, I think I would be hesitating to send my son into somewhere like this. But but we do. Sometimes I think that the obsessiveness and, you know, speaking even for myself, I, I think that I really bought into that when I was younger. Like, you know, it really was like football or the highway and that was it. And I, I definitely remember, you know, John Gruden, you know, sleeping in his office and doing the stuff. And it was like, you know, that, that was what was kind of idolized and praised. And this is the way that, you know, sports was supposed to be. And that like, that was the end all amazing all. And obviously as I I've gotten older, it's really funny because I had a, a girlfriend a couple of years ago who um wanted to date this guy who was a D1 college football coach. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm just going to warn you. I'm like, you're never going to see him because all, you know, this goes like year round for these guys um, more so even than NFL. But I don't know. I mean, it, it gives me a pause because I think that we always need to keep sports in their own place. Nobody lives and dies with these football games. And that is something that has become just so critical that I feel like we need to like shake people and remember that it's like, this is, you know, sports. It is important. It can do, um, sports can do amazing things for us in terms of bringing us together and some of that stuff that's really incredible, but it still is always just a game. In the end, like I said, nobody lives and dies with this stuff. If, you know, your team loses, like you're, you're going to be able to go again. It should never be more important than someone's life which is something that I think that we see when we're talking about like LSU, you know, having all of these sexual assaults that, you know, nobody's heard about or we're covered up or, you know, we're not reported to the right people. And I I really do think that, you know, that sends the message that football is more important than, you know, this young woman's life. And that is something that just cannot happen. I, I don't think that that's right in, in any, any way, in any context. So I think that addressing this you know, from a larger standpoint of just, just the fact that like where we, we, we idolize sports so much in our country that it, um, you know, if you actually sit and look at it, it's, it's scary in a way. And I love sports. I do. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the three of us here, we all, ca- we all came to sports because we loved playing. And so, you know, I, I totally get that. I just having watched the college football playoff selection show, I can tell you nobody takes sports more seriously than the college football coaches and broadcasters on that show. (laughs) It is college football is the most important thing in the universe. I am not sure if you all are aware, but I have been informed of this (laughs) very recently. Obviously, they're essential workers, didn't you hear? They're essential (laughs) workers. The work they do. I mean, the overcoming adversity that's gone on in college football this year. You'd think there wasn't a raging pandemic, but it was killing people. But um, apparent. But that aside. You know, that's what kind of why I asked what you just had to say, Katie, is part of the reason that I asked that question about New Mexico, because, you know, it's not the women who want to join college teams that are responsible for the environment on the college teams. It is those college coaches. It is those colleges. 
it is, you know, and I think that the emphasis then being placed on, well, you know, are women going to be okay if they want to play on college teams should be a huge indictment of the environment on a college football team, not a, not something that makes you not want to play or, or kick or try to be involved in a college team in some other way. And, and this is why I'm concerned that there haven't been more women on college teams. And Sarah Fuller's story is great, but it's a COVID-shortened year uh, where the you know roster had been decimated by a pandemic, and she comes over for three weeks from the women's soccer team, as opposed to kicking in high school and then picking a college team and then being recruited and, and, you know, suiting up and being a backup and, you know, all of these other things that kind of go with playing college football. And I'm concerned there aren't more women in the pipeline. And I'm concerned that it's because college football teams don't have an environment where women can be a part of it. So Jane, it's been really an interesting thing because I, I think that I was surprised that after, you know, I came through, I did expect that more women would uh, come a little bit sooner when they're sitting here, you know, suddenly being like, Katie and I did 17 years ago. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then we've got, um, you know, April Goss, who was the second woman to kick in an FBS Division One game. And she was at Kent State in 2015. And we're really good friends. But sometimes I forget that, you know, April so young and that she it still took you know a good like 10 years after me before we saw you know someone else who was a full-time football player kind of come through you know that that pipeline and then join a team and work her way up and play into a game it was kind of funny because she and I were chuckling just about how you know she she worked for four years before she got into a game you know, same here with me. I think that, you know, when I first had dreams of playing college football, I was um, in high school. And so that was something that I had designs on and started literally working towards when I was like 15 years old. So, uh, you know, by the time I got into a game, it had been, you know, years coming. So it is definitely a different situation when you have someone who you're, you know, hopping over from the soccer team which, um, you know, not to take anything away from that, because I think that actually there are some really, you know, great pluses um, from that story, too, especially that Sarah has been able to bring um, a little bit more attention to women's sports and how, like, here she is coming off mm -hmm. of this SEC championship winning soccer team. <laughs> And like, nobody really paid attention to it, but then, you know, she can jump onto a, you know, a uh, college football team that's going, you know, Owen seven or Owen eight. And, you know, it's this incredible national news story because they're, you're going to be seeing them on TV every week, uh, you know, no matter how they're playing basically. And, um, I think Sarah was actually the one who put up, um, some kind of statistic about, you know, 4% of, what we see on TV are women's sports out of, you know, all the sports we're seeing 96% are men's games and then 4% are women. So of course that's a whole nother issue that we're jumping into, but something that I think, you know, has been cool with um, her, her story being able to kind of, you know, bring, bring something like that into the light, which you don't get with someone like April or I. Katie, we've got to ask you about, the current college football playoff situation, which is a disaster. So look, I will admit to being extremely biased over the situation because 
my school, Indiana, that for once has a decent football season, gets completely like rolled over by Ohio State, who couldn't even keep their team on the field this year <laughs> because the Big Ten. Uh, all right. So we all know why. So, but I mean, you know, but I think there's finally some legitimate criticism of the of the uh, bowl committee in that, like, it's like they pick the four teams they can, the four biggest teams that they can justify at the end of the season. And no matter what happens, those are the teams that are going. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of people upset about Coastal Carolina, yeah. people upset about Cincinnati, people upset about IU. And we're back to this freaking, you know, the same four guys we see all the time. I mean, I guess Notre Dame's not in there all the time, but it's just like, eh, like this, this had a chance to actually be exciting. When I was in college, Indiana was still having the high school basketball tournament where any team yeah. could make it. It was, it was like one class, Hoosiers. you know, it was like, totally. so, 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 right. Yeah. It, it, like Hoosiers <laughs> was still possible. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, this could have been the year that we could have had something like that in college football, but no, it's Ohio State, it's <laughs> wow. Alabama. It's like the same people every single year. And I'm so tired of it. I know it's funny. It's it, as soon as you just said, I was waiting to see who you were going to say your college team was Indiana. <laughs> Congratulations, because that had, that was exciting to watch this year. Thank you. And it really, uh, I know, it's funny because for so many years, I feel like we were, com- you know, complaining about like, hey, this, you know, the system that we had in place with the... <laughs> you know, the polls and the, you know, this was not working. We need to get a playoff system in place. And then here we are, we've got this playoff system in place. And what do we have? Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State. (laughs) It is. I don't want to hear about how Condoleezza Rice is on the committee anymore. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I, I have a whole axe to grind with college sports generally, college football in particular, having grown up in Nebraska, but being a transplant. So I was I was basically an alien. Oh, wow. I was like, what's happening here? What are all these people doing? And um, and so I you know, that's kind of that's kind of formed me in as adult as an adult. But I it just it's, it's all about the money. It is all about the money. Right. And the people who run college football, it is a tiny little fiefdom. They are just moving cash around to pockets and the you don't you don't think it had to do with the Big Ten needing its payout? I mean, it just seems to me like this is completely predictable, and it makes it not fun. A hundred percent. And I think that we could go down this road because, I mean, a couple of days ago, what was the big headline? Uh, ESPN and ABC signed a huge deal with the SEC in terms of their broadcasting. So all this money, uh, you know, as if they need it anymore, but extra money is now getting funneled into the SEC. And I do, I think that this takes away from, you know, we can say amateurism as much as we want to, Um, you know, we can bang our heads against the wall, screaming amateurism. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but I remember back in July when the NCAA was saying, well, if we don't have students on campus, then we sure aren't going to be having any college sports. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened. Yeah, That was a a sweet 10 minutes. I know. I I don't know. I actually thought that maybe they were going to follow through with that. I don't know what I was thinking then, but (laughs) it was, it was like, I, you know, I, I saw this headline the other day and I was like, I didn't even click on it to read it because it just, it is such a bummer because, uh, you know, I, I do, I grew up like watching, you know, movies like Hoosiers, like that's, that's the, that's the background that I come from. And I, I feel like, you know, um, I don't know. I feel like it takes a lot of the, 
excitement, the fun, all these things out of college football, you know, it's amazing to me that we can talk about like Oklahoma and the Big 12 being like squished out because suddenly they maybe aren't, you know, good enough, let alone talking about, you know, Pac-12. And I mean, that's a whole nother story going into what happened with their championship game and who gets the automatic bid there and how that all worked out with the COVID stuff. But it's just, it is a disappointment that I, I feel like we're going to be seeing the same teams and the same coaches, the same for, you know, the next 20 years, if, if, if nothing changes, it's just, it's the way that the system is set up. It's all, it all revolves around money. And I think that anybody who wants to try to argue that it's not is, you know, fooling themselves. One of the things that was sort of a tip off was when 700 adults were like laid off at Big Ten headquarters because the Big Ten wasn't playing football. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? Why are there 700 adults relying on the unpaid labor of teenagers? Mm. Like to me, that just really sort of sort of took any idea that you can you can make an argument about student athletes. And then that went completely out the window. So, Katie, if you can put your four guy, your four teams into the the plows playoffs which four are they oh my gosh i don't even know that's a that's a tough question i was just gonna actually circle back and ask you guys if you knew what had happened at my alma mater this year just because i think it is kind of significant when we're we're talking about all this stuff but you know new mexico I had agree. to relocate to play so because uh. our covid restrictions are so tight in new mexico what the governor put forward there was going to be no college football. Uh, New Mexico State did not play this year. So we, University of New Mexico, ended up picking up and relocated to Las Vegas for uh, 42 days and <laughs> ended up, you know, the guys all lived in a hotel, the guys, the coaches, and then they traveled to all their games. I think they had quote unquote one or two home games there at Sam Boyd Stadium, which is UNLV's old stadium. UNLV has now moved over to um where the Raiders are playing. But it it just was such a interesting thing for me to see. And it it, it was the smarter move for New Mexico first obviously so that the guys didn't miss a season. But what was really significant about it was, you know, people were like, oh my God, how much does this cost to keep, you know, however many people, uh, you know, you've got a football team, the coaches, and then our support staff on the road for this long. And it was, it was something like, you know, $70,000 a week. Oh, but that, I know, here's the scary part though. That was actually the better deal. The it made more sense for us to do that. We ended up not going into the red then because of our television deal that we had with, you know, that, that we had worked out through our conference that for us to play those games, no matter where we are, we ended up, you know, making out, uh, doing better, making more money because we played, you know, our games on TV and made however many million, I think it was 4.1 million for those games. So it made sense to spend the $70,000 a week keeping though our players, our coaches, our support staff all away from their families and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that that was, that was something that was just so, so stunning to me. And it was, you know, a story that got picked up a little bit, but I don't know, not nearly enough. There, I mean, the thing is, there are so many stories like that. It's hard to pick up each one because each week was 
teams not being able to field teams, games being canceled, you know, all of these different things. It was hard to keep everything straight. I think Brian Kelly today was talking about how Notre Dame, all of those students are going to not be able to spend time with their families or go home for the holiday like all of the other students on campus, which we we thought they were all students on campus and got to have the same um <laughs> breaks and everything else as their fellow students. But no, they're, you know, they are essential workers. That's how they're being treated by these schools because it's an economic system. I mean, it, 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 it is stunning, Katie, but at the same time, it is, you know, all of these decisions that have been made that have put economics over student safety and player safety and community safety are also stunning. And I think, you know, one of the big arguments that had been happening in New Mexico was you know, like, hey, wait a second, you know, our government, our governor, should she be able to, you know, make this kind of decision and say, you know, we can't play in New Mexico. And for me, that wasn't even the main argument. It was more like, wow, okay, look at, you know, let's take a look at the broader picture here of, you know, these guys playing and just what exactly that says and what it, you know, means when we're looking at college athletics in general. But Kitty, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. If this was your year and you were kicking on that team and it was your senior year and you were told we're all sequestering and we're playing this season, what would you have said? Oh, would have gone in a second. I mean, yeah. I, I don't even have to say anything. I, don't, I mean, I'm glad that they took the guys and went, to be honest, because I think that, um, you know, my honestly, I, I felt like I wish there had been some leadership somewhere at the beginning of the season that had said, Hey, let's postpone this until spring. Let's, you know, take, take a look at college football, January, February, you know, and see, see what kind of, you know, abbreviated season we can do then. But it was like, I mean, you know, that somewhere like the SEC, they're not going to cancel their season. It doesn't matter how many COVID cases they have, how red it is how decimated their teams get, um, you know, for in a Vanderbilt situation here, these guys are still going to be like, let's play football. That's the most important thing. And I, I think, um, you know, just that lack of, of, of leadership and apparently, you know, the NCAA doesn't have the power to cancel a college football season, but just the, it seemed to me like there was just a huge lack of leadership and guidance there you know, kind of almost like mimicking somewhat with the, oh, sorry, I don't know if I can say it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it was exactly like what went on with the, the federal government there, that it was like, we're not getting any guidance here. So how shocking. I mean, you're going to, of course, you're going to see the SEC play. Let's, uh, and then, you know, once you have, you know, uh, however many guys playing, I, I mean, you, you do, you have players who are looking to the NFL, you have guys who, you can't, you know, give half these guys the opportunity, especially the fact that we are talking about unpaid workers who are on, though, an NCAA clock. I mean, that's a killer thing is they'll say, oh, well, we're going to give them back a year or whatever. But it's still, I mean, all that is really, I mean, that is tough stuff to deal with as a college athlete, losing a year, gaining a year, you know, deciding to sit out, watching these guys having to make the decision about opting out. What's their best choice? I mean, I that that was rough. I felt for a lot of these guys because they they are just kids, and again, it is amateur athletics, and I I sort of hate that we've gotten to this point. Yeah, it's amateur athletics with a ridiculous amount of people's livelihoods at stake, which is I think what we all sort of struggle with. 
Katie Nida, it was so terrific to be able to talk to you today. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I know that, you know, when, when we initially started talking about this podcast, you were one of the people that Jane and I um, wanted to get on and, and the stuff with Sarah Fuller um, kicking for Vanderbilt just made it all the more timely. So thanks so much for your time. We appreciate you. Oh, no, thank you guys. And thank you guys for just being out there, um, being out there as, you know, voices for women in sports and just in general. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Katie. You know, Jane, there was so much that that I wanted to, we could have gotten into with Katie. We probably could have kept her for hours. But yeah, I mean, the college football thing, I know last episode we were talking about how icky it kind of feels lately to be watching sports with everything else that's happening. And in college sports, I mean, it to me, I feel, and I, I'm sure people are going to just absolutely lose their minds over me saying this and probably give us zero stars again um, on our ratings. But I, you know, it, the college football, it really... There is a an aspect to it of old men making tons of money, making millions of dollars, making their paychecks off of unpaid teenagers. And it's got a real sort of icky vibe to me. And this year it's just been, I guess, compounded because of the fact that you can't even pretend this is about student athletes or amateurism anymore. That basically these kids had to play. Nobody was the adult in the room because too many grown-ups' jobs depend on these kids playing. Well, I don't think you can underestimate the effect that President Trump's lobbying professional sports and college sports to get back on the field had. And Scott Atlas, you know, was one of the people who came out. And, and Scott Atlas is the neuroradiologist who is Donald Trump's main advisor on the coronavirus, did not have an epi- epidemiology background and yet was providing basically herd immunity strategies to the president, was one of the people who was lobbying the hardest for college football to get back, talking about how Trevor Lawrence wanted to play and these guys want to play and all of this type of stuff. That yeah, I think my teenagers want to up- do lots of things. I don't sure. let them because I'm the parent. Well, and, and I'd love to hug my, you know, my mother-in-law, but I can't do that right now because I also don't want to kill my mother-in-law. And just the right. idea that we can't balance these different competing interests It's tough. But what I think is the worst about college football right now, and there's so much, let's be honest, is that this is a sport that has a whole slate of professed values like leadership, teamwork, turning young men into adult men who can, you know, be leaders in the community and all of this stuff when its actual values are making money. For as you were talking about, for the for the men who run college sports and for the conferences and for the broadcasters, the coaches are. I mean, in pretty much every state, a college football coach is the highest paid state employee. Um, You know, Nick Saban's got you know the boosters paying for his mortgage. You know, the thing that always really freaks me out, the thing that creeps me out the most, is during the national championship game when they have that coaches room that has like Paul Feinbaum and all those guys in it. And they're like talking about these guys, like their arm span and their shoulders and how long their legs are. And I'm just like, this has got a real slave auction-y kind of feel right now. <laughs> and it is gross. And the fact that, you know, that the people who most depend on this, like college football coaches who make far more money than anyone else off unpaid labor of teenagers, you know, they're, they're, you've got guys like Jim Harbaugh saying just the most asinine things this year. I mean, Brian Kelly insisting they're not going to play in the Rose Bowl if they can't see their families, throwing a temper tantrum about like, you know, these kids haven't seen their families for however many days. Where were you at the start of the season saying, let's not do this to these kids? 
They're talking about also players having to overcome adversity. Well, that adversity that they're having to overcome <laughs> is something that we as a society are all dealing with as well. There's no, there's no heroism in forcing players to overcome an adversity that they would actually be safer not being involved in. I, I'm not saying that very well, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like they're, they're being placed in the adversity yes. by people who want to make money. So having them overcome this adversity then is, is a ridiculous way of framing it. And I just, to me, again, it is the hypocrisy. Also, there's a lot of religious imagery used by these coaches to try to, you know, God is on our side, that kind of thing, playing for a bigger reason, all of this sort of thing. When really what they're doing is they're, they're, they're putting their local communities in danger. Now, it's not, you know, uh -huh. a lot of people are like, well, show me all of the college players who have, have died. Number one, that's really creepy that that's the standard that you're setting right. for whether or not something is copacetic. Um, number two, it's not so much about college football players dying, although there have been uh, at least one that we know of who has and and certainly other players who've become very sick. But the, it's more that these players could potentially get ill. They pass it to somebody, you know, in the drive through line at McDonald's or at the deli counter or wherever they're going and where whoever they're interacting with, maybe somebody else on campus, maybe a coach, maybe a staffer who then infects somebody else who goes to visit a grandmother at a, you know, convalescent nursing home, something like that. I mean, that is where the danger is. And we have 3,000 people a day dying in this country. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is the most important thing is not a college football playoff right now. It is not. And to have the framing of these conversations as you're talking about, you know, the stuff we see on ESPN, the stuff you see when you're watching a broadcast on network TV, to have it all framed as this is so important and what these guys are doing right. is so meaningful they are they are not delivering food to people who are quarantining. They are not health workers who are putting someone on a ventilator. They are not delivering vaccines to people who so their lives can be saved. They are playing a game to make money for institutions. And it's unbelievable at this yeah. point. You know, I, I said the other day, um, I think it was after Dabo said something stupid, which is daily. I mean, that's a Tuesday. And then Brian Kelly's giant temper tantrum about Notre Dame wanting to have more people at their games. Maybe it won't be this year. It might not be in five years. It might not be in 10 years. But someday, someone's going to look at the evidence of how this disease spread. And we may never truly know the impact of deciding to have sports in the middle of this pandemic and all the people that are involved. I mean, think of all the people, even if there are no fans, all the people involved in like a, a Sunday NFL broadcast, all the people involved in college football bowl games, you know, all the people that are involved in all of this um, that are basically working in harm's way, and we're treating them as essential workers because a bunch of Americans have decided, you know, my desire to not think about things for six hours on a Sunday and watch football is more important than keeping other people safe. And I just think that, you know, like a lot of things, I feel like I say this every day, someday we're going to look back on this and they're going to be like, what the hell were you doing? And having sports in the middle of this, I think, is going to be one of those things. Well, I think you could make an argument that professional players who are making informed decisions with their agents and their families who don't have pre-existing conditions or whatever to play in a bubble like in the NBA. I mean, you could make an argument that 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 is not a completely immoral decision to make, but I don't think you can make that about college football at all. And I think, you know, when you've the, the problem is the original sin of college football is to exploit unpaid labor. And when you're dealing with that then the decisions that you're going to be made making are there is no morality with them anymore and i think it's it's not the least bit surprising that a sport that's based on 
inherent inequity and exploitation made the decision to further that exploitation during a pandemic. It's completely consistent. I'm so mad. All right. Well, on that friendly note, happy note, um, I, you know, it's going to be one of those things people are going to be like, all you guys do is complain about stuff. Hey, it's our platform. We'll complain about what we want. Listen, you know what? There are plenty. Well, then go listen to other podcasts that are going to talk about how what a great job college football has done in the pandemic. I'm sure you can find a thousand of them. I'm sure. Um, all right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Ladies' Room. We will be back next week with another episode for Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We'll see you next week here in The Ladies' Room. <laughs>